0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, thank you for bringing us together on this Lord's Day that you have uh, drawn us into the very life of your own being and have not left us to our own devices, but have stooped low in the person of your Son to redeem us, to grant us your grace, And Lord, to relate to us in accord with what Jesus has done on our behalf. And I pray that you'll let that free us, Lord, um, to love you and to love other people. And I pray today as we enter into our continued series on your name, that you'll give the teacher wisdom and those who are here to listen, um, the energy and the understanding we all need. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have a Bible, we're going to go to... um, Come on in, there's... There's room in the ark. Uh huh. Front row. You gonna give me a turn? Like old times. Give me a Yeah. So if you have a Bible, go to Exodus three. Um, if it's on your phone or somewhere. Sorry. Good morning. Good morning. And and again. Um, every week, I'll give a quick 30-second um, overview of what has brought us to where we are now. So, two weeks ago, we, we did, because I know some of you are coming in and out, and that's that completely fine. Um, two weeks ago, we introduced this series on the names of God, speaking specifically about the significance of, of the fact that God has given Himself to be known. Um, It leans into the dynamic that left on our own devices, even with the material world around us, that may witness to the glory and the power of a divine being. And I mentioned to you a few weeks ago that I've, you know, I kind of go back and forth on some of these issues as it relates to the ways in which the natural world witnesses to the power and reality of God. Um, But wherever one lands on that, uh, sort of complicated issue about how the world itself witnesses to a, a theistic worldview, the fact that God is. Um, wherever you land on that, the logic of Romans 1 seems to be in other places as well that the knowledge of God and creation is not enough to redeem. In fact, the knowledge of God in creation is is, is there's a, it's a via negativa, it's it's a negative route, actually, the way in which it's expressed. The fact that God is witness to in the created world means that we're we're all left culpable. Um and that that means we 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 need more. Um and of course this becomes a classic problem of of philosophy, it becomes a problem of of the intellectual uh, world in the West, especially as we get into the period of the Enlightenment. Where the world of of things and forms, the world that we might think of as as where God might reside, if we can use such basic terms, is unavailable to the human mind um, this is this is where someone like Immanuel Kant comes onto the scene and really transforms the ways in which we think about the the material order of the world and the fact that we can engage the world and its material character by by, by experiencing the phenomenon that we all experience, you're here, I'm here, there's a tree, felt some wind, watched the Tampa Bay Rays win in, in extra innings last night, still chasing the play, the AL wildcard second place spot, started to toss that out there. Um, you know, so the, wherever, you know, we, we experience the world, but to press through our phenomenal world to the world of being, Those of you who might remember like Philosophy 101, the world outside of Plato's cave, right? Um, To to get to that world is beyond the remit of human possibility. We're, we're, We're left here. And that becomes a massive problem when it comes to humanity's understanding and engagement with God. Now God becomes kind of a feature of the phenomenal world that helps us to order ourselves morally so we don't kill one another, which is better than the alternative, I guess. But as far as any real knowledge of God, that's an impossibility. So much of modern philosophy has left us in a place where the knowledge of God is impossible for humans to ever actually um, achieve. And this is where I think the Bible and the Christian tradition and, and, and the broad stream of it comes in to say um, there's a sense in which Immanuel Kant is right. I mean, this is one of those things where I'm like, yeah, uh, this, well, I can navigate this carefully. But there's a strong sense in which Kant is right, left to ourselves, whether it's our religious Tower of Babels or our intellectual Tower of Babels, we can't build our towers to God, to, to arrive at genuine knowledge of God with, our, with recourses to our own spiritual or intellectual skills. We cannot do that. We stand in a place of need with that, with regard to that. And the way in which God responds is in an act of His own self-giving. And this, this is where these two little words are so important for, for Christian theology, for the way in which you view the world, and for your hope of eternal salvation. These two little words. God speaks. He talks. He accommodates Himself. And again, this, there's lots to talk about here, but God accommodates Himself to human beings in the givenness of finite words, n- nouns and verbs and prepositions. And my poor Hebrew students, Dr. Padilla Osvaldo, my colleague here today, he teaches Greek at Beeson as well. So we've got Greek and Hebrew covered today. Um, and uh, I mean, I've got my poor Hebrew one students, and, and, and literally, I mean, you would love to hear their, their translations. We're four weeks into this. It's, he sat on the fire, right? You know, like, um, and I'm like, hang in there. It's going to get better, I promise. It's going to get better. Um, But 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 even in that, I mean, those those little Hebrew words and those those Greek complex forms, God in his mercy has accommodated himself to humanity to speak to us in, in human language so that we can and remember the distinction we made so that we can apprehend and understand genuinely and really who God is, but never comprehensively. God's knowledge of Himself is never the same as our knowledge of God, but God has speaking, spoken to us truthfully and sufficiently so that we can be redeemed. Because to know God is to enter into relation with Him. So that, that's why the giving of the name in the Bible, the fact that God names Himself and gives Himself to His people in a name, that's all wrapped up in our doctrine of salvation. That's all wrapped up in our understanding that God's being eternal and infinite as it is. God, by His own kindness, did not choose to remain internal in His own being. He could have supremely, sufficiently, and without any lack in that, in that, in that state of being. But God chose in His kindness to turn outward as Creator and Redeemer. It's remarkable. And so last week we talked about the significance of the divine name Elohim. And we emphasized last week that in the Old Testament, for the most part, and this this is not a theory that would, you know, work in every turn and turn and corner, but for the most part, the term Elohim in the Old Testament has to do with God's universal lordship as creator over the whole world. That's why I think Genesis chapter one one is in the beginning Elohim created because you have in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 God creating the world so that the world becomes the external basis for God's internal redeeming work in that world and that's when you get to Genesis chapter 2 and all of a sudden we see a different name begin to appear and so you have God giving himself to the world as creator he's Elohim what's the big big deal of this given the milieu of the ancient Near Eastern world all, and you remember Jonah's sailors, right? Jonah chapter 1. This is bad news. Poseidon, Neptune, whoever this is, Yom, the sea god Yom, something really bad's happening right now. So, all you polytheists on board, let's come onto the deck and have a little prayer meeting to your God. Because we recognize that every nation of the ancient Near Eastern world, especially in the Canaanite world, they had their provincial deity. In fact, when the kings went off to war, They understood their battles to not just be empirical battle, army against army, but actually divine cosmic battle between our God and their God. Which God's going to win? That's why it's so fun in Exodus chapter 12 when Moses tells the people, God just told me to have all of you stand here to the side and watch because I'm going to fight for you. To put that in ancient Near eastern terminology, God's about to give the God raw Amen ra a big fat kick in the knee through Pharaoh. That, that's what's going on here. God, Israel's God, is the warrior, the divine warrior all of, of, over all others. And so each nation state had its own deity that was their God. Marduk, Tiamat, um, Baal, El. They all had their gods. And Genesis 1 and the term Elohim is a claim that the, Israel's God is not a mere provincial God for the nation of Israel. Israel's God is the God over all gods. He's the God who's the very reason why existence is. He's the God that doesn't depend on the material world um, for his own being and character. And he's the God, Genesis chapter 1, unlike all the other creation myths from the ancient Eastern world, he's the God that produces the world not as the product of some sort of cosmic divine conflict, Tiamat and Marduk going head to head, But as the product of his own word and the effective power of his spirit to subdue the chaos and to bring it into cosmos. God's not in battle with anybody. So Elohim attests to his sovereignty, his, his, his identity as creator. And if you'll remember from last week, the technical term that I really wanted you to walk away with, Elohim attests to the fact that Israel's God, our God, is free. He's not constrained by anything external to himself. He's free in his sovereignty and in his relating to the world and his people. But that's a general uh, expression for God. The name that we're going to do today, in the in, in the next five minutes, um, or whatever we have left, and I'll keep an eye on this. The name that we're going to do today, and I want to talk about this one a little bit. Um, I'm sure the hangman can go. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the other side, that can go. Um, what we're going to do today is um, this name, and it's. And I'm going to write it up here: yod, hey, vav, hey. Now I know this gets weird, but I want to talk to you about this. So that's a a yod, that's a hey, that's a vav, and that's a hey. That's these Hebrew terms. Which, by the way, in certain forms of Kabbalistic Judaism, spiritual, mystical Judaism, they see a lot like Britney Spears got into it. That kind of stuff. <laughs> um, these, these letters are actually viewed as magical letters. There's a kind of magic connected to the Yod, the hey, the Vav. Um, and we talk about that. But this, this is the name that God gives Himself to His people to be known by. This is the particular name of israel 's God, to put it very clearly, this is, this is israel 's god's personal name. Elohim, in effect, is not really a name. it's a descriptor of the character of israel 's God. Similar, frankly to, and we'll talk about this later, similar, frankly, to Christos in Jesus Christ. You know, it's a hard thing to kind of explain even to our children. Christ is is not Jesus' last name. You know, so you know, Mr. Christ. You know, I mean, that, that's Christ. It's a, it's a title. It's the Anointed One. It's it's the Mashiach. It's a descriptor of who Yeshua is, which Yeshua is his proper name. Elohim is a descriptor of the character of God as universal in his oversight and his sovereignty. But this is the name by which he gives himself to be known. This is the name that attests to the fact that God has given Himself to a people, in relation to them, in covenant relationship to them, to be loved because He's given Himself to them to be known and worshipped. He's He's elected them. He called them out of Egypt. We're going to go to that in a second. And their response to this name here, the sole response is, and you know this, Deuteronomy 6:4. The Lord our God, the Lord alone, and you shall have no other gods before you. Right. So you have here very much rooted with this particular name the exclusive loyalty that's attached to that name and uh, and, and to that person as, as Israel's God. Now, a few things about this, and um, I tease my students because I I encourage the students that I don't I don't I'm not legalistic about this, um, but of course it's it's a tradition that goes back even before the time of Jesus. That whenever you came to this name, these four letters, known as the Tetragrammaton, right, the four letters, that when you came to these four letters, they were never to be phonated. You weren't to say the name. That that was an application of, um, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Um, that was an app. So to not to not repeat or or identify the name or or vocalize it. And so there's a perpetual tradition that's linked to this that whenever you come. To the Tetragrammaton, you don't say uh, Yahweh or Jehovah. You say Adonai, um, Lord. Uh, in fact, I had a student just this week, and I always play with them with this. But he, they're doing this, some of their first translations, they, and one student came along to the Tetragrammaton, and he and he tried to pho- he forgot what it was, and he tried to phonate it, and I said, "That's okay. You just got struck by lightning, but you'll be fine. Don't worry about it." <laughs> um, so. I, I'm not rigid about it, but I do encourage them to be out of respect for this. This is this is a, a holy name. This is God's name uh, to be taken with utmost rever- reverential character. Um, and in fact, you know, in, in English parlance, we'll we'll say things. Like, people will write things like Yahweh, right? Or what I do now whenever I'm writing, I just go Yod Hey Vav Hey. Um, the one that has had a lot of long shelf life is Jehovah. Which, by the way, I don't mind Jehovah. Um, Jehovah, uh, do you know how we get to Jehovah? You remember that the word Adonai, Adonai Jehovah is taking all the vowel sounds of Adonai and slapping it onto these four lever, letters. So now that you have Yehovah, Jehovah, Jehovah. Um, so they're actually all. The point is, all of those are, are constructs. We we don't know how the divine name. Was pronounced because of the holiness that was understood um, related to that name and, the, and, the, and the, um, the, the slowness to speak and to phonate that name that in time, and this is kind of wild actually, but as a feature of the Hebrew language in time, nobody knew how to pronounce it. Nobody. Um, it, it got such a long shelf life that nobody knew how to pronounce it. In fact, you'll often hear, um, even in, in rabbinic circles today, instead of saying any of these things, they'll just say Hashem. Which in Hebrew means the name. That's it, the name. All of that to say, it's this name that you, I think, you want to be um, thinking about and conceptualizing when you hear things like this. John 17: I have made your name known to them, and yet I will make it known to them even more. Um, or when you come to a scene, uh, uh, the claim in Philippians 2, and he handed over to him the name that is above every name. That's, that's not abstract for Paul. I think the name that he's understanding here is... In fact, in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, and that's homework, you can go read it. Paul actually um, uh, uh, interprets the Shema, the hero Israel, the Lord our God is one, by inserting the name Jesus Christ into the Shema. Uh, which is, I mean, frankly, from a certain perspective, that's heretical, right? Um, from a Trinitarian perspective, of course, it makes great sense. So the handing over of the name is the uniqueness of this name right here. And that's what takes us to our scene in Exodus chapter 3. Okay? Um, all right, keep an eye on top, Keep me honest on time, Nathan. All right. So when you get to Exodus chapter 3, this is one of those holy moments in the Bible. You know, I'm very slow to identify any particular text as like the center of the Bible. So I'm out, I would, I just that's, It's too complex to even think in those terms. But I think one of those zenith places in the Old Testament is certainly Exodus chapter 3 because now we have some traction that's given to us in a redemptive moment in Israel's history that's all wrapped up in the giving of the divine name to God's people. So you know the story. I won't bore you with the details of the story, but you'll remember it. At least you've seen Charlton Heston. So you'll know what happens. <laughs> um, that he, that he's in, he's in Egypt. He's now part of Pharaoh's court. He kills somebody. He's driven out into the wilderness. Quite happy in the wilderness with Jethro and his daughters. Um, the Midianites are always sort of, pre, um, are viewed, um, in the Old Testament as, as the friends of the people of God. Jethro is, is a good man. He's a good father-in-law. Um, and by all accounts, Moses seems to be happy, um, but Moses has a kind of prophetic destiny awaiting him. And he's out in this countryside, and he sees this uh, thing, this vision, um, this sight that draws him into it. And of course, where is he? He happens to have wandered into Sinai, and he's near Mount Horeb. He's, he's, he's in that area, the, the holy place. And he sees a tree that's not being consumed, and of course, and I love it because sometimes the Bible is so understated in the way in which it presents the narrative, and I appreciate that feature of it. Um, I think that the King James said something like, "I must go and see this wondrous thing," or something like that. You know, so, I mean, it's like so if you're out in the, you know, in the, on the countryside with your sheep, and it's just you, and you see a tree that's on fire, and the leaves are as green as your grass, it's a phenomenon that's going to draw your attention, I think. And of course it did for Moses and he walks over and then he has the encounter, right? And the encounter with the Holy One of Israel who identifies himself as the God of Moses' own fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And of course, you know the whole story. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. You're going to go and you're going to redeem my people and you're going to bring them out from the land of Egypt into the land of promise. And you're the one that I'm going to call to do this. And what does Moses do? What so many prophets in the Old Testament do in that moment, he protests. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I mean, I think we look at that and say, what an honor. And Moses is like, next guy, you know, find him. Jeremiah's like, too young, not me. Gideon, find somebody else, right? Um, and Moses falls into that same particular trope that, that's a type scene that you find throughout the Old Testament where his initial response to the burden of God's Word and God's mission is to say, I'm not up to that. Not a good communicator. Speech, I never, never did well in speech. And God says, I'm going to be with you to deliver you. And then we get to what I think is the zenith of Exodus 3, where where Moses asks a very pointed question that has layers upon layers of significance in this interlocution. When I go to them and I tell them that the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, sent me to you, they're going to ask me, well, what is his name? I don't want to read too much into that, but the fact that they're asking that question I think is buried on some level or that he's anticipating that question, has to do something with the fact that the people of Israel are going to want to know, is this God relating to us? Is He our God? We know He's the God of our fathers, we get that. But we've been in Egypt for a long time now, and the presence of God seems to be one of the farthest things that we have yet to experience in our suffering. So what is His name? Does He really give Himself to us in relationship to be known? And Moses says, they're going to ask me that question, what do I tell them? And this is where you have the response, tell them, and here's your, um well, I won't write it up here. Uh, yeah, I will. Oh, forget it. Ehia, Esher, Ehia. Which is, that's an E. Um, which is, all the, most of the translations say "I am who I am," um, and I, I tell my students that uh, you tell them "I am sent you." And I tell my my students is you're going to run you're going to run into a pastoral problem someday because there, there are going to be well-meaning prisoners in your congregation who are going to come to you and say, "I'd like to go to Beeson or somewhere else and and learn Greek and Hebrew." Because I feel like if I can learn Greek and Hebrew, which I encourage all of you to do, might as well cut some years off purgatory, right? Um, you know, if, I'm, if I can learn Greek and Hebrew, then um, it will answer all of my interpretive problems. Right. Um, you're laughing. And, I, and I said, you, you, need, you need to let them know that the beauty of, and I don't mean this in any way pejoratively, the beauty of Bible translations is they adjudicate that for us. And often in ways that are very good. Not always, but but more often than not. I mean, we have every reason to love our Bible translations. Um, but the problem is, once you know the languages, the, the truth is, now your interpretive options kind of grow exponentially. Because this phrase right here, you wonder how many different ways this could be translated? I am who I am. I am who I will be. I will be who I will be. I might be who I will be. I might be who I might be. I mean, you have all kinds of options just given the basic verbal character of what's being expressed here and and if you pushed me into a corner I do actually think and I've lean on some people on this but I actually do think the emphasis here is not I am who I am I do think the emphasis here is I will be who I will be or you're going to know the significance of my name in the redemptive actions that you're about to see In other words, I'm you you and, and, let, while, while you're here Flip a few pages or scroll your phone to Exodus 6-2 because this is a Bible interpreter's nightmare verse. God spoke to Moses, Exodus 6-2, and said to him, I am Adonai, Tetragrammaton, the four letters. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Elyon, the God Almighty. But by my name, Adonai, Tetragrammaton, Jehovah, that name, I did not make myself known to them. That's one of those moments where you go, this is a problem, Houston. Because all I have to do is go back to Genesis 18 and find Abraham sitting by the oaks of Mamre. And who is it that comes to Abraham and has a conversation with him through those three angels and then the one? This name right here. Right? Right? Um it, Isaac and Abraham, there, there's no reason at least, now there's historical debates about this maybe, but there's no reason from the biblical narrative standpoint to have any reservation from the fact that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew that name. And here you have in Exodus saying they did not know him by that name, they only knew him as El Elyon, the Mighty One. What to do, right? What to do? And again, this is not gentle, I'm leaning on on the the readings of others, but I think what's going on here is a claim, not that they did not necessarily know the (laughs) phonemes of the name, but they did not know the significance of the name as it's attached to this unique redemptive moment with Moses. I'll give you another reason why I think this is the case. Um, The last time in the Pentateuch when someone asks God, what is your name? is that the wrestling with the Lord that Jacob has by the river Jabbok. And they're at it. They're going at it. Fool Nelson. I mean, I love this scene. You've heard me talk about it ad nauseum. Um, but uh, at the end of it, you know, of course, Jacob's name is now turned to Yisrael, which means striver with God. At least that's the way the, the Old Testament glosses it. You strove with God. Your name is changed now. And do you remember what Jacob says? This is the part of the scene we often forget. Well, what's your name? And you remember what God's answer is? Not for you to know right now. And the next time that we hear the name, that question asked, "What is your name?" It's with Moses here in Exodus chapter three. Because the name Yod Hey Vav Hey Adonai Jehovah, that name is uniquely given to God's people in this redemptive moment in Exodus. And it's as if, in effect, God is saying to Moses, it's not just to know the four letters. That's not to know the name. There's no saving character in just knowing the four letters. The significance of the name, the character of the name, that which fuels the substance of the name, is that which you are about to experience in the unique moment that this is going to have for you and your people when I rush into Egypt and I bring all those plagues and I then bring you to the brink of the Red Sea and I deliver you on the far side and deliver you from your enemies. When I, if I can borrow from Robert Jensen here, when I take Israel that was dead and I bring her back to life again, you're going to know what my name really means. So the, the character of the name and the name itself are necessarily related to one another in such a way that I cannot have the one without the other. Just to know the name is not to know enough. To know the saving character of the name, the redemptive action of the name, that's to know what the name really signifies. And by the way, I also think that fuels the logic of what Jesus says in the high priestly prayer. Or Philippians 2. Did anyone in the first century world who went to yeshiva school and then went to you know, Shabbat in the synagogue and the temple's feasts and sacrifices not know this. They might not have ever said the name, but they wouldn't have recognized the yod hey vav hey. Everyone would have. And yet here is Jesus in the high priestly prayer saying, I've made known your name to them, and yet will make it known even more. Flip the page. We're in the Passion. Right? Why? Because the name is linked to God's saving character. The fact that he's given himself to his people to redeem them and to save them. And again, this is I'm not, this is a Robert Jensen quote, but I think it really gets at it. The God of the Bible is narrated as the God who raises Israel from the dead in the Old Testament and he raises Jesus from the dead in the New Testament. The character of Adonai, Tetragrammaton, the character of that divine name is to take things that are dead and to bring them back to life. So this name here, this is God's personal name. It's the name by which he is to be known. Um, and on our last Sunday together, we'll come back and I'll talk about the significance of understanding Christian discourse. Father, Son and Holy Spirit in light of the centrality of Tetragrammaton. Because I think this here, this Tetragrammaton, can be pre- predicated, can be talked about, can be applied to any person of the Trinity. Father, Son, I think it's underdetermined in that way. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the three in one, that all all, and at the same time are Adonai, Tetragrammaton. And we'll, we'll talk about that some more in the last week. Okay? Um, I got to go. <laughs> one question, yes. I don't do practical. My wife tells me this all the time. So you said we read capital G-O-D in English, that's usually L-O-D. Is this capital L? Oh, yes, capital I'm glad you said that. When you see this in English, that's your capital L, then smaller scripted, still capital O-R-D. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so, uh, um, is it Psalm 110? The Lord says to my Lord, which is, Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Adonai, says to Adonai, my Adonai, capital L, little O, little R, little D. Um, so yes, the, the, the convention of our English translations is to indicate the divine name with a capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which I think, and again, you know, I've got Osvaldo here today, but the, the, the significance of the Greek term kurios, Lord, in the New Testament, as applied to Jesus, is all wrapped up in this, I think. Um, you know, so we'll 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 talk more about that. Okay, Lord bless uh, these dear friends as they depart. Um, thank you for giving us yourself in your name, and knowing Lord that that's wrapped up in the ways in which you've redeemed us. We're grateful in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.